As we come to Mark chapter 11, we come to the final section of Mark's gospel, uh, chapters 11 through 16, where he is in the city of Jerusalem. The whole book has been building up to this point. He finally gets to the week of Jerusalem, or his, his time in Jerusalem. As we get to these chapters, chapters 11 through 16, there's actually a great deal of content. There's a, there's a lot in these chapters. Some of these chapters are very long. There's several pages of content here in my Bible. Uh, but one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that although there's a lot of material here, all of these events take place in one week that is the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. And so things slow down in the narrative here, but Mark has a lot to say about Jesus' uh, crucifixion, about his resurrection and all the events surrounding that. Now, the first half of this big section, chapters 11 through 13, uh, takes place in and around the temple. And so that's how I organize it, in and around the temple, events that are occurring here. And our sermon text this morning is Mark 11, 1 through 11, where Mark gives Jesus' triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem. Uh, here, crowds will greet him as a king, and it'll be very interesting to see what responds in all the events uh, that are occurring here in this text. Now, before we uh, get into the text, I want to ask you a question. Um, have you ever watched someone approach, approach a big moment before, only to think once they're in the middle, or perhaps at the beginning of the big moment, that they just aren't quite prepared for this moment? Um, perhaps you have a favorite football team in the NFL and you've been cheering them on. Somehow they squeak into the playoffs and so you sit down, you're very faithful and you're ready. You're going to cheer them on in this moment to play against another team. And then they start playing and in the first quarter, you know, oh boy, it's just not going to happen. They're just not ready. They're not good enough. They're not smart enough. Perhaps you're not a football fan. Maybe you can think of a presidential debate where you had a favorite presidential candidate and you, you see him finally get up on a stage for the debate and you think this is his shining moment. This is when he's going to separate himself from all the other candidates, but then he fails miserably. And you think, man, he's just not ready for this. Maybe give him, you know, you should go home, take another four years, eight, 12 years, whatever, to prepare for this. I think we've all seen moments like this. To this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been pressing, pushing forward on his march to the city of Jerusalem. And in our text today, he arrives in his triumphal procession. In the passage that we'll look at in just a moment, we're going to see that this moment is not too big for Jesus. No moment in life is ever too big for Jesus. But Jesus will wisely work through every portion of this story, showing that he is in control that he has sovereign insight into the events that are occurring, and this morning we'll get to rejoice in the fact that no moment is too big for Jesus. Mark tells his story in three acts. The first one starts in verses 1 through 7, so I invite you to look there in your Bibles, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. 
And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. This comes to the first part of the story. Act one is the acquisition of a colt. Here, Jesus and his company, they are on the Mount of Olives, which is about two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem as the story begins. They're somewhere between the city or village of Bethany and a little hamlet called Bethphage, or we don't really know exactly where it is, somewhere in the outer precincts of Jerusalem, perhaps. But they find himself in this place. So Jesus does an unusual thing. He sends two of his disciples on a mission to an unnamed village. They're to find uh, a colt that had never had a rider before, untie it, and bring it to Christ. Now, as I was reading through this part of the story, there are just a few questions that came to my mind. I mean, if you're like reading this, perhaps you can imagine reading it for the first time. You see these things. and So a few questions came to my mind. I thought if they came to my mind, they might come to yours as well. One of the questions I have at this point is why? Why would Jesus request a colt or a donkey? What is he looking for? Why does he do this? Is he worn out? I mean, he's up on the Mount of Olives. Now he's going to take two miles down into the city of Jerusalem. It's not going to be that bad uh, as far as, you know, the, 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 the strain on him. So why, why would he seek a colt? And the simple answer to that question is that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy here. More specifically, I think Jesus has a text on his mind, Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Now, to save some time, we won't go back there and look at it. I put on the PowerPoint behind me so you can see it. Zechariah 9, 9, I think, is the prophetic text that Jesus is thinking about. So look there on the PowerPoint behind me. Text says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, to understand this verse, I think we first need to say that earlier in the chapter, Zechariah has been predicting times of physical deliverance for the children of Israel. But at this point, when it gets to this verse, I think that Zechariah's imagination goes forward. It fast forwards to a time when he can imagine ultimate deliverance for them, not just physically, but spiritually. And so he looks forward to a time when an anointed Messiah will come and will deliver the people of Israel. So verse 9 here, he's predicting a time when an anointed king will come to Jerusalem. And he describes this king in three ways. You see it? Right here in the text, it says that he is righteous. He is the righteous one. That means he is just. The way these readers, the first readers would understand this, he is, uh, is fair in his practices and judgments as a ruler of the people. That's what this Messiah, this anointed ruler will be. This will form the very basis of any sort of peace. I mean, if you're going to have peace, you have to have a just rulership. True peace demands this. And so... This anointed king, Zechariah says, will be righteous. He then says that he will also have salvation. You see there, I underlined that right in Zechariah 9. He will have salvation. It's interesting to me as I went back to Zechariah this week and studied this, is this verb that's used here is passive. Some people would translate it this way. He uh, will be saved. 
This anointed ruler who comes to help you will be saved. And if you take it that way, it means he's saved from affliction or some sort of persecution that he goes through. But I think there's a better way to take this concept, having salvation. Another way you can say this is as Charles Feinberg did. He said this means he's endued or clothed with salvation. So Zechariah is imagining a time through the power of the Spirit when a ruler will come who will be clothed with salvation. That is, he will be a savior for people. When he comes, salvation comes with him. Then he describes Jesus one more time in this text with the word humble. Humble. This ruler, this king will be humble. You translate this word lowly. He will come in lowliness. So in contrast to all the haughty and proud kings of the earth, this one will come lowly and he will demonstrate his lowliness by, by coming into the city riding on a colt. This is the full of a donkey or the young offspring of a donkey. So Jesus asks for a colt in this text, I believe, to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Years before, Zechariah said, an ultimate deliverer will come and will come to you riding on a colt. As we continue to go through this, another question I had was, well, why? The text describes a colt in an interesting way in these first few verses. It says it was a colt that had never been ridden. So Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples. I want you to go into some unnamed village here. I want you to go in there. And I want you to ask for... Uh, or, or just take a cult that's never been ridden before. As I came to that part, I said, well, why would it have to be one that was never ridden? And I think Jesus is just fulfilling cultural expectations at this time. As a matter of fact, in the, in the Babylonian Talmud, the Jews taught or proclaimed that a king was to sit on a horse or a cult that never had any other riders. Be pure and devoted to the king. And so Jesus does this as well. And so you got, you know, Jesus giving instructions. So what do the two disciples do? We read through the text. It's pretty simple. The two disciples, they have their orders. They do just what Jesus says. They go into the city. They unloose the colt. But then they're confronted by some who are standing around. It's a very interesting part of the narrative here. Okay. Some were standing around. Some of us are just really good at standing around. We could have had our part in, in the Bible here. There's some who are just standing around, minding their own business, or maybe the business of everyone else. And they see these two guys come in. They don't ask any questions. They just unloose the, the, the cold. They start taking it away. And so these some who are standing around uh, do a few things. Okay? They, they ask what's going on, and they say exactly what Jesus tells them to say. They say, the Lord has need of it, and it works. They let them go. And so again, as I came through this part of the narrative, in the middle part of this section, I asked a few questions. A few of them came to my mind. One question I had was, well, who is the Lord? Okay, because Jesus says, what you need to do is you need to tell them, the Lord has need of this. No other instructions. Just tell them the Lord needs it, and that's going to work. And so one of the questions we work through is, well, who's the Lord? Some think that this is the owner or the master of the cult. That that's who Jesus has in mind and the disciples have in mind. Because the word here is curious. It could be translated master or ruler. The master is need of it. 
However, I don't think that that's best. I think that for a whole host of other reasons, I mean, I don't think that view makes really much sense at all. I think who Jesus means here is himself. He's the Lord. And while this might seem unusual to us, I think it's, it's, you know, it's what Jesus foresaw, it's what he predicts, and the advice that he gives them. Tell them the Lord needs it. Now, I think that this could feel a little bit unusual to us today because of some cultural differences that we have today from those ancient practices in and around Jerusalem in the first century. One of the ancient practices, I think, that would help us really understand what's going on here is a practice called um, Angaria. Angaria. You say, well, what is Angaria? Angaria was a cultural rule that meant if someone's property meant that someone's property could be temporarily requisitioned by an official, like an important royal person. Okay, in our culture today, I don't think we have much like this at all, except maybe maybe something like a police officer commandeering your vehicle if they're chasing down a fugitive. In other words, in the first century, there was this practice that if an important ruler came into the city and he needed something that was your property temporarily, you just gave it to him. In fact, I think that these people would have rejoiced in the fact that the Lord needed their cult. So they let him go. I think uh, that idea, when, with, when it's combined with the idea of the growing popularity of Jesus here, can help us understand how anyone how the reference to the Lord or Jesus as Lord would work here. Uh, There's a parallel text, and we won't take the time to go there, but in Matthew's gospel, in a parallel text, Matthew says at this point, as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he says it this way. He says, the whole city is stirred up. Anticipation, excitement of what's going on with Jesus. Okay, so I think it's likely that most people would know who the disciples, these two disciples meant when they said, the Lord needs it. They would know that's Jesus. The second question I ask in this text is, uh, in this section is, how would Jesus know that this would work? You're like, this is like very specific instruction. Okay, you're going to go in, I want you to take the cult, if someone stops you, you're going to say, the Lord needs it. How would Jesus know this was going to work? Well, some people think that Jesus prearranged this somehow. Okay. But I would say that that really doesn't make any sense in Mark's gospel. Jesus is pressing toward Jerusalem. He's surrounded by crowds. So, you know, so some would have you believe that you know, Jesus somehow finds a way uh, Uh, to get away from the crowds and the people and the disciples, and he maybe goes in and he tells them there's going to be a time I'm going to need a cult, you just give it. Or maybe he sends someone on a mission. I think all of that is possible but unnecessary if, if you would just believe that the Spirit could enable Jesus to know this. In other words, as I see this text, I think this is an instance of divine foresight. Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, understands the events that are going to occur, and that's why he tells them to do this, and he knows it's going to work. You say, that might be a little bit of a stretch. Well, I just want to show you another place in Mark's gospel. Flip over to Mark 14, just a few chapters later. I think something very similar is going on, Mark 14. And uh, let's look at verse 12. I'll just read a few verses here. 
I just want you to imagine these instructions. Imagine that you were one of the two disciples. Go, get the gold. Don't ask anybody, just take it. Someone says to you, just say the Lord needs it. That's all you got to say. And then keep going. Okay, we'll do it. Look at verse 12. This is another interesting thing. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to them, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two. Another two. I wonder if it's the same two. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. Imagine the odds of this sort of scenario. Going to see, you're going to see, one of the first things you're going to see is you're going to see a guy carrying a water pot. Just follow him. Follow him wherever he goes. When you follow him, ask him for an upper room. It does it. These are instances of divine foresight. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. And so going back to the story of the cold, he knows what's going to happen with the cold. He knows where the cold is going to be. He knows that it'll be available. He knows about the confrontation with some standing there. As instructions reveal, he has divine foresight. And so after these two disciples get the colt, they give it to Jesus. They use their cloak as a saddle upon the, the, the donkey for Jesus to sit on in which he can ride. So as we come to this part of the story, we are in the acquisition of a colt. To me, it is amazing that even something so mundane as the acquisition of a cult in something like this, we can see the, the control of Christ. I got the impression as I'm reading through here that nothing is outside of Jesus' control in this moment. He thought, he's thought through everything. It's all unfolding according to his and the Father's plan for him in Jerusalem. Jesus is not entering the city as an unknown victim. What's going to happen? But he enters it with divine sovereignty and insight. I return to what I said at the beginning of the sermon. This moment is not too big for Jesus. He's got it under control. Men and women, no moment in life is too big for Jesus. You see this in stage one, the acquisition of a cult. I see it as well in the response response of the crowd in verses 8 through 10. So just look down in your Bible, Act 2, the response of the crowds. It says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna! In the highest. Here in these verses, the crowds are in front of and behind of Jesus as he begins to make his way on a colt to the city of Jerusalem. Many of these people will take their coats off of their back, their cloaks, and they'll spread it out before Jesus. Others will take branches from the fields that they've cut down and they'll put them on the ground in front of Jesus as well. Some other texts help us gather a little bit more information about what's going on here that is important if we're going to fully grasp what the, you know, what the details of the story. Uh, another gospel will tell us that this is at the time of Passover, 
one of the great Jewish feasts, where there'd be many people making their way to Jerusalem, many Jews making their way to Jerusalem at the celebration. But what I want to do for sake of time, I want to draw our attention to what they say or what they're singing. I think they're singing or chanting as Jesus comes on, a, on the colt into the city. This is what they're saying. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, middle of verse 9. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. I want to show you first of all that, that first phrase, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are quoting the Old Testament scripture with the statement. That word Hosanna at the beginning originally meant something like save us, O God. Um, it came to mean something like hallelujah in English, a, a way to praise God. They get that from Psalm 118, verse 25. They get this statement, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from verse 26. And so, although it was our scripture reading this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn back to Psalm 118 for a moment. As I just point out a few things to you about what the crowds are singing or chanting here regarding Jesus. So turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 118. I'll leave Mark up here so we can compare it, but turn back to Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. So we go back to this psalm. We come to one of the Hallel Psalms in the Old Testament. So from Psalm 113 to 118, there's a group of psalms that came to be used as a means of celebrating the Passover. These songs were originally about the exodus when the children of Israel, uh, this is what they're celebrating with Passover, the, the exodus when the children of Israel leave Egypt and are freed. And so every year on their calendar, the Jewish people celebrate this and sing these psalms as a Passover celebration. In this original setting of Psalm 118, this psalm, I think, is a royal song celebrating or offering thanksgiving to God for a military victory. It's interesting to me that in this psalm, and we don't have the time to look at every place, in this psalm, you have an anointed king, an anointed one, a single worshiper that you will see over and over again giving praise to Yahweh. You have the king accompanied with a a company of people and they're making their way through the gates of the city in places like verses 19 and 20. So you've got this anointed one with a company of people coming through the gates of the city into the temple, verse 26, you can see into the temple there at the end of verse 26, before the altar of the Lord in verse 27. So in response to this coming king and his host, Look at what verse 26 says, okay? And I take verse 26 as this is what the priest will say to the anointed one who comes with a company of people into the temple of God. So the priests say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Name the Lord. We, that's the priest, bless you from the house of the Lord, the temple. So as we go back to this Old Testament text, we begin looking around. It seems to me that this phrase, that what will happen in the New Testament is those surrounding Jesus will sing this phrase in celebration of his 
entry into the city, through the gates and into the temple. In other words, those around Jesus, the crowds, they think that Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 118, verse 26. They are greeting him as a king. Now, the reason I think that is if you see that phrase right after it, blessed is the coming of our father David. See that second one on the PowerPoint there? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That comes from no Old Testament text. That's what these people think is going on. They think Jesus is bringing the kingdom of their father David. And so they say, Hosanna or hallelujah in the highest. So this is an exciting moment for the crowds. They think Jesus is bringing the kingdom of David to Jerusalem. But alas, this exciting moment does not last very long for them, does it? One of the things that strikes me here is is that just a few days later, these people will reject Jesus and demand his crucifixion. To go through the story and we're thinking about Jesus and what we can learn about him, I think one of the things I would take away from this part of the story, this part of the story, the response of the crowds is that Jesus knows what's going on. As a matter of fact, Jesus quotes from the same psalm, Psalm 118, I think about two days later. Only Jesus is going to quote this psalm as a means of testifying to the fact that God knew that they would reject him, the cornerstone. So in in Mark chapter 12, he's going to use the same psalm to speak of their rejection, their ultimate rejection of him. I think what Jesus knows here is he knows their praise is fickle, and he won't be sucked into false confidence or dependence in this moment. Again, this moment is not too big for Jesus. He knows exactly what is going on. Sure, they're praising him on this day. But two or three days later, they will seek his life. Perhaps someone here has experienced this sort of betrayal. Someone has turned against you recently. They were so kind and supportive to you before in their uh, unbounded praise of you. But then, you know, now they don't have anything nice to say to you. I say, men and women, we can learn much from Jesus. We can, we can learn. He knows how to have sustaining faith and persevere when people are praising him and when they demand his life. So at this point in the story, we see the response of the crowds. And again, I think we see the wisdom and sovereignty of Jesus. There's just one part of the story left. It's just one verse, act number three, the survey of the temple. And I want you to look, with that, look, look at that with me in your Bible. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Okay. So this is kind of a strange ending, right, to a triumphal procession. Okay, Jesus comes in, everyone's shouting praise, exciting, thrilling, but then you've got this, as I said, a strange ending. Unless you understand that this verse, I think, is meant to teach, again, that Jesus has it all together. He knows everything that's going on. 
somehow in this verse, verse 11, somehow the crowds disappear. doesn't appear that they're, that they're with him anymore, so he's just with his disciples. They make their way into the temple, but the text says it's at night. And so what does Jesus do? He surveys the temple, and then he quietly retreats with his disciples to Bethany. Now, although this story ends quietly, what Jesus sees in this quiet evening informs his actions the following day in the temple. You all know what's going to happen in the temple on the next day, don't you? Okay, i just tell you this week, read ahead. Jesus is going to cause a little bit of a commotion in the temple because of the way things are set up and what they're doing in the court of the Gentiles. And so what we have here in verse 11 is a quiet moment the night before where Jesus goes in. He starts looking around. He starts surveying the temple. He sees what's going on. And will prepare him for the next moment, the next day, where he will confront false worship in the temple. So again, I'm struck with this. Even Jesus' quiet moments of surveillance demonstrates that he recognizes the true significance of what's going on. He's in complete control. He understands this sort of worship, the stuff going on, the court of the Gentiles. This can't be. I'm going to do something about this. So even the way the story ends, we see Christ. Perhaps you come to church this morning burdened down and overwhelmed with anxiety or fear, midst of some sort of difficulty. Perhaps you feel overwhelmed in your own important moment of temptation or trial. Won't you trust that Jesus knows all about it? Because I'm reading through the triumphal entry, one of the things I, I just walk away from the story thinking is, man, Jesus had it all together. He's not duped into thinking that this is going to last. He's not overwhelmed by the pressing crowds. It's not like he forgets that I've got to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9, a cult. Jesus keeps it all together in this moment. The stage is not big to, too big for him. The moment is not too big. He's in control. He knows everything related to life. And this is not just true of his life, but it's true of your life as well. He knows everything about your life. And the same sovereign Lord who is able to maintain faith and focus in the midst of these circumstances and situations can help you do the same. I close with this final thought of reflection. We must learn to trust that no moment in life is too big for Jesus. He will guide us through with foresight, wisdom, and grace. Same foresight, wisdom, and grace that he demonstrated in the triumphal entry to Jesus or to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for this text of Scripture, Mark 11. We often read this text on Palm Sunday. We read it and study it a week before we celebrate Easter. But today, in your plan, according to your will, you wanted us to look at this text. Father, again, I'm so thankful for what we learn about Jesus here. He's been pressing, pushing forward to this moment when he would enter Jerusalem. And yet in the moment, I see wisdom. I see divine foresight. I see integrity. I see commitment to obey your will. 
even, even if it means the next day he will have to cause commotion in the temple to secure proper worship for you. Lord, I'm so thankful that I serve a Lord that not only knew this about his own life, he knows my life, he knows the life of my family, he knows the life of this church, every individual here. He knows our moments of temptation and trial. He knows our difficulties. He knows what we're facing day by day. And he will guide us as well. Lord, may we learn to trust Jesus, trust Jesus in our big moments of life as well knowing that he will guide us and direct us along the way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.